welcome to the complete Stanley Kubrick episode nine. We are in the 1970s. I am uh, I am the host of this show, Matt Gasteyer, and uh, I am joined by my uh, faithful co-host Travis Trudell. How you doing, Travis? Doing well. How about yourself? I'm good. I just had some uh, some milk plus to get me ready for uh, this uh, exciting experience. You ready uh, for the old ultra violence now? Well, I'm ready for a little of that old ultra podcasting. Is that a thing? <laughs> I, I feel like Alex know, would it, not approve. <laughs> it is now. Um, yeah, so uh, we we uh, we will not be doing the the whole thing in uh, what's what's it called? Weird NADSAT. NADSAT. Yeah, we will not be doing that uh, uh, this week. Uh, we're going to do the Barry Lyndon episode in NADSAT, though. <laughs> um so and we have a guest here with us uh as usual but um uh let him introduce himself but uh his name is ken james and uh he's uh he's a uh a friend of travis's uh and uh new to the uh the podcasting experience so if you want to uh introduce yourself to the audience and say a, a few words about uh your background that would be great how you doing i'm doing great thank you so much for having me uh uh, in for this discussion. Uh, I really look forward to spending time talking about this film. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> just a few fast words about me. I, my background in, in my professional life, I've kind of had a foot in two different camps. Uh, earlier in life, I, I was pretty active in television production, a lot of nonfiction kind of educational TV production. And I, I pretty much wore all the hats, uh, during that, that period. I was, producing and directing and I was doing videography and, and editing and uh, and then over the course of several years through a kind of gradual process I I ended up doing more and more uh, writing and more and more teaching and sort of academic research work until that took over everything uh, and uh, now um, most of my work has been uh, around teaching film teaching media teaching literature um, history of film, history of animation, um, drama, uh, history of drama, screenwriting, creative writing, that sort of thing, a range of things. Uh, and uh, part of the reason or the reason that I'm here is that Travis uh, once was a student of mine uh, at the uh, workshops uh, here in, uh, in Maine, the uh, Maine Media Workshops in Rockport. And uh, now, now that he is now he is himself a teacher and has carved out a niche for himself in the in the industry. And since he's a teacher, he knows how cool it is for me <laughs> to witness <laughs> to witness that happening. Uh, you know, a student going on and, and doing these really really cool things. So it's very satisfying to have this opportunity now uh, to participate uh, in something that I know that Travis and I both love to do, which is talk about film. Uh, and I guess the one last thing I should say is, apropos of the the current topic of discussion, uh, a lot of my research work has involved science fiction. I've done a lot of writing and research on the on the work of Samuel Delaney, who's a, an American uh, uh, science fiction writer, writer in me, in many genres, but very well known as a science fiction writer. So I've loved science fiction all my life, and so it's it's twice as satisfying to be able to discuss not just a, a film, but a, but a science fiction film. So that's, that's, uh, that's my background in, in a, in a very small nutshell. 
Awesome. Well, we're really, uh, really happy to have you here. Um, the first thing we do, uh, sort of the, um, the orientation for our guests is, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we, we, you know, this is obviously, um, this season we're covering Stanley Kubrick. And so, uh, I was wondering if you could say a few words just about, um, your relationship with, uh, Kubrick's work, uh, sort of how you came to it and how your opinion on his films has evolved, uh, as you, um, have watched movies and, um, you know, uh, your, tastes or or perceptions of film have evolved over the years sure um <clears throat> i'll i'll start off by saying you know i've 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 uh, been listening to your earlier podcasts and uh i was really struck by how similar my experience to kubrick was to that of your your last guest david blakesley uh when you were talking about 2001 uh, when he was telling his story i thought yep that's pretty much what happened with me too uh <laughs> My my experience of, of Stanley Kubrick's work started when I was five, uh, and uh, I went to a, a revival screening of 2001 with my dad. Uh, I guess so that would have been in the early, mid-70s, mid um, and uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it, uh, and, you know, for a film that has a reputation for being cryptic and mysterious and difficult... Uh, I think I was like a lot of kids um, who saw 2001, which is that I had no problem with it at all. <laughs> I, uh, and, you know, now I was a I was a kid who I already liked outer space and I was already, a you know, a visual kid um, to begin with. So, you know, watching a two and a half hour film about spaceships and astronauts, you know, what what's not to like? Uh, <laughs> and so. Uh, I, I found it absolutely uh, extraordinary, and I think it's a I think it's a testament to the to the purely visual storytelling that Kubrick was doing in that movie that it was so completely engaging for even a very young kid, you know. And um, uh, I remember an episode uh, right after seeing the movie, I I went home and my mother asked me what I thought about the movie, and you know I really liked it, but a comment that I remember making was, you know, I. I didn't understand all of it, but it seemed to me like at the end, everything was starting all over again. <laughs> and, you know, which is a pretty good interpretation, but also, you know, a very natural interpretation, you know, for, for a, a kid to make, given the kind of visual storytelling that, that Kubrick was doing. And I, and I will say that, you know, since then, I must have seen, I've seen 2001 dozens of times and it just gets better every time. There's not one time that I haven't seen it that it hasn't improved uh, on, yeah. on viewing. Uh, and there's so much that I would love to say about it, but you guys really pretty much already said all of it. <laughs> Too much, some would argue. <laughs> but I concurred with virtually everything that was that was being said. My responses were, were very similar. Um, as for the the rest of... of Kubrick's movies, um, you know, I have a, my sense of them, it, it kind of, it kind of echoes my response to your podcast about paths of glory. Um, some, some remarks that were made during, during that podcast, because I, there was a, I got a general sense from that podcast that there's something about that movie that feels almost like it's like the distilled essence of Kubrick. Like it's, it's the moment where Kubrick becomes Kubrick in a very in a very pure way 
and I and I sort of personally in anyway, I feel like for all of his elaborations of his ideas and themes in in future films in other genres, uh, Paths of Glory feels like kind of like the cleanest punch uh, right. from Kubrick. Like it's that it's that basic essence. And I remember, and I and I saw Paths of Glory after I had seen most of the other major Kubrick films. You know, Strange Strange Love and Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon and 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 the, and the rest. And uh, I remember thinking right after seeing Paths of Glory that it really was a very clear expression of what I take to be the basic subject matter of almost all of Kubrick's films, which for me is um, men. Because it is always it's all it's about the world. It, you know, his films are about worlds of men and kind of masculine pathologies, um, men fucking up in an incredibly organized way. <laughs> that is sort of the essence of 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 a lot of Kubrick. You know, where you have this kind of incredibly intricate orchestration of people and procedures and technology all to produce just this huge turd, you know, like it just all <laughs> falls apart. And, and to me, Paths of Glory really capture, you know, captures that in a, in a, in a very distilled way, um, you know, and what could be a better subject matter for Kubrick for that theme than, than, than the First World War, you know, that it's, it's like a perfect subject for, for Kubrick in that way. Um, having said that, uh, by the same token, for me, I feel a, a Clockwork Orange, to me, expresses everything I find problematic about Kubrick in a pretty distilled way. Um, and I think that, I mean, I'll sort of give away my thesis a little bit here. Uh, uh, I, I find Clockwork Orange to be a very dissonant and contradictory movie um, where there's a lot of different elements that are in themselves extremely interesting, but don't quite add up. Uh, and the way that 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 they don't add up to me is 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 really interesting, um, interesting in relation to Kubrick, and I think interesting in relation to larger issues uh, for other other films and, and other filmmakers, which maybe we'll we'll have time to to get to uh, at a certain point. And I should say, like, I'm not here to you know harsh anybody's Kubrick mellow, you know, uh, in in relation to, to to this movie. I you know again, if I had to choose my favorite movie of all time, it would be 2001. You know, if I were, if I were forced to make a decision, it would for sure be 2001. But I think that Clockwork Orange is, is problematic uh, and, but problematic in really interesting ways. So that's my, that's my thought on, on Kubrick. Well, thank you. That, that's great. I, I, I think, uh, I think we'll definitely be um, talking a lot about the the contradictions that are sort of inherent in this film and uh and i i don't think we're we're too far apart and you know i mean this is not uh this is not intended to be a kubrick fan cast so <laughs> well you know <laughs> as much as uh, i think we we love a lot of these movies um f you know for me uh this this film uh is a movie that i i hadn't seen in a very long time so i honestly didn't know uh, what my response would be uh, to it, but um, before I before I get into to my response, Travis, I, I thought uh, maybe you could set up just a real quick, like a little bit of kind of what Kubrick was doing in between two thousand one and Clockwork, and um, yeah, where uh, you know 
where he how he ended up uh making making this movie no for sure yeah um so after the success of 2001 a space odyssey uh kubrick started on his doomed to never be made napoleon project um it was something that he really um had been championing and been wanting to have made for a while and he's he continued to try to want to make this movie up until his death um but uh the funding wasn't there it was going to be way too ambitious way too big he couldn't secure the money um studios were backing out on him because just either ba- either he was uh some reports had him being like a way too hyper excited after the amount of control he was able to uh, get in 2001 um, and a lot of studios weren't willing to give him that much freedom so he had a hard time securing that money and his uh, wife as usual pro- provided him with another distraction and said why don't you check out this book that Terry Southern who co-wrote uh, Dr. Strangelove with him uh, suggested, and it was Anthony Burgess's 2000, uh, Clockwork Orange. And of course, you know, he read it and he was super excited. He liked a lot of the themes and the thoughts and the stuff going on in the book. And he had a very clear idea of how he wanted to go about making it. And he, uh, he wrote the screenplay himself. Um, and, uh, to all accounts, he really did. He didn't just take the credit for the screenplay like he has in the past, <laughs> um, and he does in the future. But uh, for this one, and it's you could tell on the screen that it was, uh, you know, he's taking whole blocks of dialogue word verbatim from the book. So um, it was a very clear adaptation by him for the film. Um, he filmed this in like 1970, released in 1971. Um, it was problematic in the United States. It was given an X rating. He took it back, trimmed it down, uh, got it to an R, uh, got rid of some of the overtly sexual scenes, uh, rape and, uh, some graphic sex and, uh, got it down to an R in the United States. And then in, uh, in Britain, he ended up voluntarily pulling it out of rotation because of some copycat of violent crimes that were happening after the movie. Um, and it was critically acclaimed. He, It was reviled in some critic circles, uh, or Pauline Kales and the like, um, but it was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards and BAFTAs. Uh, it won a few. It did not win anything at the Academy. Um, yeah, it didn't win anything. And, uh, yeah, and now it's uh, gone on in some sort of infamy or another, generally probably because of the fact that it was something that uh, you shouldn't see, um, as with as was Lolita's whole ad campaign. Um, I think the film was really sought out and looked after by people who couldn't see it. Uh, the Catholic decency league gave it a c for condemned so you should not see this movie if you're a roman catholic no one should see this film um which really bothered anthony burgess the author because uh there are lots of christian morals and values in the story that he thought was didn't make the translation to the big screen and because of him constantly having to defend it um him and kubrick had a bit of a souring of their relationship which until that point they were 
getting along swell. So, and he yeah. did like the mm-hmm. movie. Uh, he, oh, he, he yeah. He thought it was a good adaptation. It was just the 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 constant need to defend it. I think he became tiresome to him. And the and the film was not uh, screened in uh, the UK at all in any format um, after it got um, taken out of circulation. Um, until a year after Kubrick's death, it, it received a, a wide release in theaters there. So if you were yeah. a Stanley Kubrick fan um, for the majority of his career, you were and you were in the UK, you were unable to see this movie unless you, uh, you know, uh, took a took a boat or a plane to France uh, to uh, to take in a, yeah. a Clockwork Orange screening. Um, well, so let's get into it. Uh, I'll, I'll start with you, Travis, before I, uh, before I, I blurt out all of my, um, my hastily assembled opinions. What do you, what do you think of, uh, uh, what did you think of Clockwork Orange, uh, this time? And, and how many times have you seen this movie? When was the last time you saw it? Um, I want to say I, I revisit this movie every time I have a new class to teach on visual language of some nature, whether it be cinema language or, um, composition or just like intro film classes i always revisit this movie because it is so strikingly visual in terms of compositional themes and uh circular themes in terms of echoing uh the same types of shots and the same types of movements so uh because it's so striking and strong in terms of that uh there's nothing subtle about it (laughs) so because of that it's easy uh to use as an example to really drive a point home for some students um but this is the first time in probably six seven years that i've i watched it for more than just the visual style of it um so it is it is a difficult movie. Um, there is some. I agree with uh, what Ken was saying. There are lots of ideas and themes in this film that don't necessarily uh, aren't necessarily made clear. Um, it's it's intentionally intentionally left muddied. I believe. I think. Uh, I, 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 uh, I equate this movie a lot to our viewing of Lolita. Um, the subject matter is really difficult, and there's lots of good ideas, themes, and thoughts that he's placed in the film, but I don't think he's fully successful in excavating those ideas and presenting them to the audience. Um, I think he leaves a lot for us to excavate, and based on the success or the legend of this film at this point, I think people have pulled a lot of the wrong uh, <laughs> pieces and artifacts out of it to celebrate. So it's a, I do in, I do like the film. I do think there's lots of, lots of great things that we're going to talk about that is, are in the film. I just think that it is after witnessing like, the transcendence of 2001 and seeing what he can accomplish um, so clearly in something like paths of glory. um, It's, it's, it's kind of, it's almost like feels like a step back for me. It feels like Lolita where he was more, the things that he found interesting in the book aren't what make the, the movie interesting. And I think he kind of 
lost his way a bit, focusing mainly on the visual language, the music, um, trick photography tricks that he did, and some of the really good essence that could be pulled out of this was just left lying there, unfortunately. So, yeah, I mean, that's my, without going into super, super details, I guess that's my general thing, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with you guys, because hopefully there'll be some push and pull or some points made that will help me either appreciate the film more or cement my opinion uh, a little more strongly. So I, I kind of wish that I uh, adored this movie because I, I think that there are some really strong uh, advocates of this film out there who, who firmly believe that you know Kubrick executed his vision um, perfectly uh, in this movie. Unfortunately, I'm not one of them, so I think we are uh, all three a little bit in agreement here in terms of uh, this not feeling, ha- having a lot of great elements um, and not really feeling like they all congeal. Um, I, I agree a lot with what pretty much everything you just said, Travis. Um, the one thing that I, I maybe disagree with is the idea that the film is intentionally muddied. Um, and maybe again, this is Kubrick saying things that, uh, he, he might not necessarily believe simply because he's either kind of toying with, uh, people or, or, um, working on the, uh, the legacy of his film, but the way he discussed this movie afterwards and, and within the context of the, the, um, the negative response that it got in some circles, um, he he seemed to think that the film was extremely clear and and making a very simple point um the 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 central idea of um is is control over the does control over the bad kill man's free will and therefore you know result in a clockwork orange the the idea of something that is not natural it's not um and and you are in a sense, it's it's worse to um, eliminate free will than to control the people who choose poorly in those situations. Um, but I feel like there is so much else going on in this film that it feels like though the things the other things that are going on are super interesting as you as you mentioned, Ken, but they they don't seem to play into that central idea, and in fact quite frequently undermine it and so there's it seems like there's these this whole other movie that's happening um on the side similar a little bit to lolita um that that it doesn't seem fully thought out and i feel like you know there was one point um in an interview uh that kubrick gave after this movie where he he basically said a lot of the visual style that he did in the film was simply to keep the story interesting in the scenes that didn't seem like they were necessarily um, going to be as interesting as he wanted them to be. Or I guess maybe I should say he really just wanted every choice he made to be an interesting one. And that's a worthwhile concept, but uh, quite frequently, if you are just choosing something to be interesting, you're not really thinking about the way that it applies to the overarching uh, whole of the of the experience and so that makes the the movie sort of constantly engaging but it 
doesn't really hold together. Um, and so for me, you know, as I'm watching this movie, I'm very interested in it. It's obviously uh, an impeccably made film from a technical perspective, um, as most of Kubrick's films are. But unlike 2001, where the more you watch it or the more you read about it, the more you like it, in my opinion, with this film, the more I read about it through the last few weeks, the less I liked it and the less I felt like it was really something that that stood up to sort of deep evaluation. Um, so that's kind of kind of where, where I am. And it sounds like it's not <laughs> far away from where you guys are. Um, I mean, I guess the first thing I'll I'll ask of you, Ken, is just, you know, you mentioned that you felt like there were a lot of sort of contradictory um themes and issues that were that were being raised here do do you want to speak to that uh, at all and kind of what the what the sort of core things that are sort of clashing um that you see in the film are sure um <clears throat> so uh i guess by way of starting um i i could compare one aspect of it with uh with with 2001 um uh one thing that made 2001 so visually effective is that Kubrick and the rest of the crew had a real space program to look at and figure out and the aesthetic of, you know, there was a, they, they, they were, this was, it was made during kind of the zenith uh, of the, of the moon race. Um, so you had real textures of real NASA hardware that you could, uh, you know, you could riff on at the same time, um, one thing uh, I, I've noticed about 2001 is that it's about that hardware, but it's also kind of about the visual culture of the 60s, you know, like Haywood Floyd's trip to the moon, uh, trip to the space station and trip to the moon. A lot of it looks like still images from the slick magazines of the time, you know, like Look magazine, which Kubrick was a photographer for and, and so on. So there's... I almost feel like there's a second level to the visuals in 2001. You know, you're looking at space hardware, but you're also looking at the visual culture, you know, of, of the, of the sixties. And, um, in fact, I've often thought like a stealth title for 2001 could be 1968. <laughs> and, and I think, again, I think that's one reason why, and one reason the movies, that movie's so impressive is because it's so, it's also so deeply skeptical of the, the space race and of everything swirling around it, you know, and the idea that a movie like that would appear months before men were going to land on the moon is just staggering to me, you know, the, just the audacity of the whole statement. And I think that a clockwork orange is kind of similar. You're, you're looking at a, at a, at a quite, you're looking at this near future landscape um, and you're looking at a visual culture, you know, um, a lot of the exteriors uh, were, you know, they were dressed up uh, locations around London. You know, uh, Thamesmead, this kind of su London suburb, uh, was the location for Alex's home. Uh, and, you know, those dystopian settings were all just the, the, the brutalist architecture of the day. And Travis knows I'm a huge brutalism fan. Oh, so yes. one reason I enjoy this film is because I get to look at, you know, brutalist architecture. Um, but also with the interiors, you know, you get all of this kind of uh, graphic arts and interior design that reflects 
the sort of psychedelic uh, mod design aesthetic of the day, but ex- exaggerated, you know, right. uh, and so it's a really good example of, of like a very dirty down science fiction world. But this is where I think the contradictions start to come in. Um, basically, the, the mise-en-scene of, of Clockwork Orange, like the environment, um, is very textured. You know, you have this dirtied down near future landscape. You have a kind of sense of the graphic, the graphic culture, the visual culture. But um, the larger world as a whole over the course of the movie is just completely and totally decadent and unredeemed on any level. Like there's a kind of total bleakness uh, to the universe of the story that to me doesn't really, it doesn't, to me, I, I don't, I, the environment, the texture of the environment looks like a reasonable near future extrapolation. But the negativity of the, of the total environment is so cosmic that I can't connect the gritty realism you know, of the, of the environment with the total awfulness of everything. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I agree. I mean, I, I guess I see, I mean, if I was going to be the devil's advocate, I would say that Alex, is, it's from Alex's perspective. And so, you know, you could see him seeing this hyper violent, hyper negative world around him, despite the fact that um, the 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 world itself is not actually as kind of dystopian as perhaps his perspective would lead you to believe, but at the same time, like, is that really what's going on here? Like, to me, what's going on here is that the world is not as well defined as it needs to be in order for this reality to feel like an actual uh, tangible future. Yeah, I would I I I would agree with that. I I mean, uh, taking off of both points of Ken and, and you Matt, um this this viewing of this film made me realize how small this film is. Yes. Like coming from the vastness of the infinite and beyond in of uh, the last film, uh this world is is not well defined. You barely like there's no extras <laughs> like like there's no extras there's no view of like what the world is it's it's very insular and you know i can understand that it's alex's perspective we have an unreliable narrator who views the world very poorly or very or opportunistic um but you know besides seeing one other gang it, like he is his group stands out but there's nothing to stand out against because, you know, with the exception of a slow uh, dolly back in the milk bar, there's no anything else going on. Like, I don't, like, the car scene driving out to the country, we only go to one house. We don't, we never see the world. The world is never opened up to us. And, you know, reading, reading about the production of this film, it's not like he was want for money. Or he was want for, you know, you know, it was just kind of like, why isn't this a little bit bigger? 
Like, give us give us that shot of the city and all the gangs roving it at night, like they say. You know, the whole world is turned on its end because teen gangs are destroying everything. Um, but we don't ever see that. It seems very small. It almost seems low-budget B-movie-ish in terms of its, uh, you know... He's a, here's our four locations, and we're gonna go. We're gonna use them once, and then we're going back to them again, and that's our movie. And it never feels like this is something bigger. Um, I know generally we don't talk too much about like the books that these are based off, as we focus on the film as as a whole. Um, but uh, I read the book over the little vacation we just took, and one of the things that didn't translate very well to the screen and I don't know if he left it out intentionally he probably did but there's lots of mention in the book about the fact that there's so many people on the moon out in space and it almost could be if if we continue like this is what earth is while Hay- while Haywood Floyd is up on the moon discovering the other monolith kind of thing like this is what the world has turned to with the apes and the violence and the bone. This is the jump. This is the thing that takes place in the jump cut uh, to the space program in 2001. Like, this is how we've devolved back to just being brutal and, you know, violent and evil, our basis natures. Um, and I think that this, it needs to expand. It needs to be bigger. And I'm not talking like Blade Runner, giant Neo Tokyo, huge. Right. I'm just talking just like give us a sense of the world so I can understand our character Alex and his place in it. That's that's like that's what I need in that film. Yeah, I want to let me just riff on that for a second. I agree with what what both of you have have just said and uh about the about the sense of <laughs> the sort of scrappy quality of the production, Travis, that you were kind of alluding to that it does have a mm-hmm. kind of B-movie smallness you know, about it in terms of its, uh, where things take place. I was, uh, you were talking about how the world seems kind of small, you know, that we're not able to, we don't really get a sense, a clear sense of the larger universe. And I think this is speaking to another quality of the movie that really stood out for me this, this, this time around when I watched it, uh, yesterday (laughs) for, (laughs) for the purposes of this podcast. Um, which is, and, and I think it kind of speaks to some of what we're, we're talking around here. Um, I was really struck, well, preface, the one, one other thing that, is, that feels unreal about, about the film is that the people inhabiting it are, are very unreal. Uh, that everybody in it, uh, the people that we actually do meet, they all feel like kind of a lunatic caricature you know, mm-hmm. everything is over the top. Deltoid, the social worker, you know, is a maniac. Frank Alexander, the writer, turns out to be a maniac. You know, and so everything is everything is over, over the top. And I was really struck this time. And th- this, in a way, made the movie more interesting for me uh, with this viewing by how totally artificial and mannered all the behavior is. Uh, and, and that there's a sense of theatricality running through the film and in fact theater itself yep. happens yep. in the film several times the droog that the droog fight happens in you know in an abandoned theater and then the the ludovico 
dem- demo, you know, is this bizarre theatrical performance, and and Alex's own self presentation is very is very theatrical, and so everything in the movie is kind of. I feel like there's this uncanny way in which every element in the movie is pushing you pushing you away, like you're you're you know we're showing you this dystopian world, but you really can't believe it. And we're showing you these characters, but you really can't believe in them either. Um, And so there's this odd sort of uh, very consistent kind of distancing that that, that's going on that's just kind of pushing you away. And, you know, to 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 go back to sort of what what Matthew was talking about a little earlier, you know, on the one hand, Kubrick seems to seems to think that he really is making a movie about freedom of choice and you know uh con- conditioning and 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 freedom of will and and so on yet the universe that we're actually being presented with is in no way like a it 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 won't let us see it as a real universe you know it it keeps kind of pushing pushing us off from feeling as though we're watching a movie that wherein freedom could even be a topic you know because do I believe that deltoid is is has free will? You know, uh, not really. I, I don't really believe he's a person. Right. So again, yeah. there yeah. is this kind of weird uh, narrative uh, dissonance. And in relation to the to the book, also, I'll just say one one other thing. Um, like the book, it's the 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 book itself has is very. Uh, it's a very tight sequence of events. And because the movie is is quite faithful, it is a very faithful adaptation of the book, with the exception of that, you know, the infamous final chapter. Uh, it the movie has a very tight structure, um, where you know we get this kind of mirror imaging going on, uh, where right. everything everything bad that Alex does comes back at him at the end, like he sort of gets his comeuppance in a very symmetrical kind of way, and if you look at it. From a narrative standpoint, there's an awful lot of coincidences. You know, he just happens to be beaten mm-hmm. up by he happens to be that bum, be be picked up by those cops and be taken to and finds himself that at that house, home. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a kind of there's a there's a. I remember thinking this the very first time I saw the movie, which was back in high school, uh, where I and and when I read Burgess's Anthony Burgess's own remarks on it, he basically confirmed what I'd thought. It feels like a fable or an allegory, you know, oh, yeah. where where, yeah. You're, where people aren't really people; they're kind of symbolizing things, you know. And the events aren't really events in an ordinary narrative way; they're just kind of they're symbolizing. They're they're imparting a lesson, you know. There's like a didactic yeah. thing going on. Well, I think that speaks to what Travis is talking about with with the idea that there's so much that you you need to work to take out of this in order to get the message that Kubrick was trying to uh, deliver. Because, like, to your point, there's nobody here who is using their choice to act in a good way. So we're not getting the contrast between Alex and anybody else in the film. Uh, to see that there is, you know, this path that he's choosing. And to me, the the choice control issue within Alex is sort of irrelevant because 
throughout the film, his life and pretty much the lives of everybody else in the movie um, are being controlled externally by the powers that be. And by this, you know, it, there, there's no sense that anybody is really making any choices, uh, good or bad, in the film, necessarily. It seems like they're always being driven to these options by external forces. And to me, that's kind of the, the central flaw of the movie, which is that ultimately this idea of free will and choice versus control is not entirely uh central to kubrick's interests as a filmmaker and i think what what seeps through in the movie is what kubrick is genuinely interested in which is kind of what you spoke to earlier i mean i think of it as a central idea of power which i've mentioned before and really though that's really what this movie is about is is this this control over people um the this the you know the the ending the idea of this politician becoming friends with this guy a guy that he was essentially intending to destroy as a human being in order to cement his own power that's really the stuff that kubrick is most interested in but those two things don't really go together or at least they to me they don't really meld in the movie um and they so it just becomes this sort of um ridiculous uh satire surrounding this central moral fable and they don't really line up with each other i looked at the acting style or the style of this as like kabuki everyone is this gross caricature of themselves grotesque yelling and speaking way out to the back of the room from the stage and but it's also going off of the fable or the uh it's it's like almost like a passion play like it feels a yeah. lot like you know that idea of going through the stations of the cross and there's literally a passion yeah. play in the film i mean yeah exactly yeah. in which <laughs> alex is uh, the roman, roman yeah. <laughs> soldier and all happy uh, yeah and the only to to your point matt the only person that is standing up as a morally good person is the uh, is the uh, the priest character or the chaplain or whatever his uh, denomination is as as a, a religious figure, and even even him you know even his his take on it you know he's the one who espouses the central theme of the film of uh, you know without w- free will there is no man man cannot exist without the choice because God gave them permission to choose right or wrong and it's his choice to allow that to happen kind of thing um and it's uh it's it's weird because i'm not a religious person at all and so i have no but i was raised in uh catholic school i went to catholic school for nine years unfortunately um but it 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 becomes this me being from that position I only, I generally, unfortunately, only see uh, when, whenever there is religious moments in film or religious characters in film, I I only see hypocrisy. So for him to be the central figure that is speaking this, he's as grotesquely caricatured as deltoid is in terms of what he represents in my mind so even the central figure of who is supposed to be espousing the morality portion to me as a viewer 
is already in the I do not trust this person list of my of characters I don't trust in films. So like even that choice like of having that person be the one who gives us our moral center uh, makes me suspicious of that character, which then takes away that whole moral choice, you know, aspect to it. It's really strange because they have a it uh it, it under it undermines itself by just but but that's I don't know if that's just me. Well, I find that scene really really now. clunky. You know the the yeah. the fact that it, like the guard is there, and don't get me wrong, it's the guard's reactions to when the the woman comes out are hilarious, and I laugh out loud. You know, seeing it, but what what's he doing there? What is this priest even doing there? It, it's very confusing to me. Like this this person was plucked from like a national pool of people. Why would they bring all of the people from his? prison that he's no longer at to like see this presentation it's it's very and then the priest just stands up and makes the you know and speaks the theme of the film uh it's very uh it's very surprising for a kubrick film that it would be so just sort of so uh awkwardly bald-faced um and then and then like to your point about the the priest being kind of the central idea i mean i i'm also not a religious person and i realized that that um Christianity is filled with intentional contradictions that are intended to make you kind of think about your relationship with God. But um, the whole idea that like the giving man free will and choice uh, would be central to Christianity is kind of, especially Catholicism is kind of funny to me because, you know, you're almost essentially creating religion in order to keep people doing good and you know not going to by by making them making it clear to them that if they sin they go to hell uh, so mm -hmm. like to me it's like you're 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 telling people they have free choice and they have choice but they, then you're making up this punishment for them if they do something bad it's still part of a control structure right exactly yeah well that's the thing you're 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 taking away the the priest's control structure by taking away that free will now they have no one oh, to preach yeah. to yeah you know it's a it's a sub sublimation of an you know right. th overthrowing a power structure which going to Kubrick's triangle of uh, of interests you know is that power I was just gonna kind of play off of something you were saying earlier Travis about you know you know is it me or is this priest really untrustworthy you know and I and I think that there's another way in which the priest's authority is undercut which is Again, just the overall added, the sort of deflating vibe that runs through the movie. You know, by the time we see, I mean, the, the priest's authority is undercut throughout. You know, uh, during his talk with the, the prisoners, there's this flirting that's going on and there's interruptions of his, of his sermon mm -hmm. and, and so on. And no one, it, it, no one in this movie is really held up except to be, you know, struck down. And yeah. it seems to me that just because of that tone, you don't even have to mistrust the priest <laughs> because of your own personal experience with Catholic schools or what have you. You know, it, he's he's already untrustworthy because he's in this movie. Um, and you, he, the movie isn't going to let you take this guy as representing any kind of moral authority because it won't let anybody represent a quality that isn't somehow compromised in some kind of deep way. Um, so, so again, 
you know, when he shows up during the, uh, the demonstration performance and, and speaks, you know, sort of speaks the meaning of the film, I at least can't take it straight. You know, I, I can't take it as anything other than, than a kind of ironic or empty call to a certain kind of, you know, a certain set of values. I also wanted to say something uh, uh, that uh, speak to something Matthew had also mentioned earlier, which is uh, you were talking about how everybody in the, in the in the movie is kind of unfree. You know that that there's no way to really read anybody else as acting of their own free will. And I was thinking about you know the two different ways that you can take this movie. You know, are, take the environment of movie. Um, Either you're in an unreal kind of fable world where no one is really no one is really free because no one is really real. You know, all of these people are kind of puppets. It's like we're watching a Punch and Judy, you know, puppet show. Um, and in that case, freedom as a topic just doesn't make sense. You know, it's like the theme doesn't actually match the overall like cosmos that we're in um because the cosmos doesn't have freedom in it because it's like it's like we're we're it's more like we're watching animal farm or something like that where you know everything yeah everything has a symbolic or emblematic meaning but but it's not really where we just can't take it as real contrary wise um if we're meant to take the environment realistically, like, yes, we are meant to take this as kind of a real, as a dystopian, you know, near future society. It's a society that's in decline. You know, it's clearly kind of, it's sliding towards fascism. You know, that seems to be kind of the suggestion uh, in terms of the political background, if it isn't already there. Um, when, But if that's true, if you take it that way, there's no way that Alex, you can read Alex as, as kind of representing freedom, you know, a freedom that ought to be protected mm-hmm. because he's, as I think, Matthew, you were sort of suggesting this, he's a product of that environment, you know. Uh, right. And when I see a teenager in real life, like when I see a teenager behaving in some kind of irrational way or like showing off or acting out or being a criminal or whatever... I don't think to myself, ah, you know, there's freedom. You know, that's <laughs> like the, the, what I think is like, there's a young person who isn't free yet, you know, because yep. I, I, they're behaving in a very conditioned way. And I use that word, you know, they're very conditioned. They're very conditioned by their environment. They haven't grown up. That's why we try juveniles in a different way than we try adults, you know. And I think in the novel, there's a sense that part of the evil of the conditioning is that it's preventing Alex from growing up in effect. Like it's, it's not letting him get to the point where he can become free in, in effect. Um, but in the movie, that aspect of freedom just doesn't, doesn't really exist. Or let me turn that around. If the larger world of the movie were more realistically presented where you just got a sense of a fuller range of that there is a whole society out there with a range of people in it then i think you know alex putting forward alex as free like as more free just wouldn't hold up because he would be more obviously a product of that larger environment so i i think that's sort of getting at why 
there are these contradictory elements. I mean, it could simply be that, you know, Kubrick's idea about freedom in this movie is kind of half-baked, you know, and that he has to, and, and that he has to distort the environment around his central character in order for that thesis to hold up. Like, you know, um, it's kind of like, <laughs> uh, I just thought of this. It's kind of like reading an Ayn Rand novel where you have to, you have to distort the universe of the story in order for the basic thesis of the story to be convincing to work, to work you know, yeah. and, and maybe that in a way is, is part of what's, what's going on. And I, you know, maybe Kubrick, if, if this is the first script that he worked on alone, in effect, you know, out not collaborating, um, could it be that he just bit off more than he could chew, you know, like, or that his, his interests as a filmmaker, as both of you have said, have kind of overrode his control of the narrative material. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean, that's what it feels like to me, just because, you know, even, even the, in the first part of the, of the film, to me, it's much less uh, what the all of the things that Alex is doing have much less to do with his ability to make a choice to either be good or bad in that situation. Yeah. Then they have to do with the idea that this is a powerless teenager in a terrible future with no, you know, with no life around him. Wheel, using whatever uh, he has at his disposal to wield power over weaker people in order to feel stronger than he actually is in his position in this society. You know, the, the, the whole, his, all of his interactions with these, um, with his droogs, like there's no, the, the, none of those things are underlined by choice. They, it's a mini society. Um, you know, he's warring with other countries. Uh, he's, you know, going out and, um, and taking the spoils of those wars. Um, and he's, he's, you know, he has a hierarchy within this small group of people and he is essentially, um, you know, executing, um, Machiavellian technique to stay on top, uh, which eventually causes his downfall. Um, it's not the, the choices that he makes that lead him there, but rather the, his, thirst for power and control that ends up, you know, um, uh, putting him in prison. So again, it just seems like what the, the book was about and what the movie is trying to be about, um, get subverted consistently by what Kubrick is actually most interested in, which is this, um, power dynamic in society. Now I have a question. Uh, we brought this up on the Lolita podcast as well. Do you think that all of these points about youth and revolt, uh, growing up, learning how to, you know, acting out and then learning how to kind of find your way into society as an adult, do you think all of this would be clearer or more effective if once again Kubrick didn't age everyone up? Like, there's no point in this movie, even when Deltoid's over, do I feel like Alex is a teenager. Right. Yeah. Um, or or a teenager playing adult. Um, like, I always feel like he is older. I Like, these are college-aged kids in my, in my mind. 
Um, I've never been able to rectify or, or to put them in that place of being, I think in the book, he's supposed to be like 15. That's right. Um, and cause, cause one of the things we, you know, once again, we're, we're off, off into the book. Um, you know, they're all 15. Most of the girls that mm. they either are taking advantage of raping or he's picking up in the record store, uh, are described as 10 or 11 year olds, which, you know, completely put me off when reading the book. Cause after seeing this movie many, many a times, you know, those are older women in the, in the, in the movie, which, you know, not saying that that is, makes it justifiably right or something like that, but never in that book, never in the movie do I feel like these are all really young people doing really fucked up things. Um, they're older people making older decisions, which therefore don't make it feel like they're coming from a naive place or a braggadocious place or something of like a teenager. They feel like they're adult decisions that are poor. Um, right. I, I wonder if you guys, any of you guys think about that or talk about that uh, as an idea or a concept. I certainly agree that, uh, you know, in, in relation to the book, I, I, I've had the same reactions that you did, uh, Travis, and, uh, and, and an, an additional thing, which, which speaks exactly to what you're saying, is when Alex is finally dragged off to the, you know, by the police, and he's, you know, he's sort of demanding his rights, you know, he's like, I know I should get a lawyer, I know this, and he, he's still sort of acting out. In the book, because we know this is coming from the mouth of a 15-year-old, he just comes across as pathetic. You know, mm. he's just a pathetic teenage schmuck, you know, basically just frantically trying to, you know, get out of the pickle that he's in, you know. But in the movie, because it's coming from, you know, 20-something Malcolm McDowell or, or older, you know, uh, 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 McDowell, it comes across as, uh, again, this kind of cold, chilly, Machiavellian, calculated kind of behavior. And that's just a different meaning. You know, there's that, that just inflects that whole sequence very differently. He, uh, you, you're just not seeing a 15-year-old doofus you know, uh, trying to trying to make things work out for himself. You're seeing something entirely differently, and and it does just re it it reinflects the the quality of the movie. And I think that this was what you know some of the critics were reacting to, like Pauline Kael and and Roger Ebert too. You know that Alex just comes across as too attractive and yeah. too mm. char- too charismatic for for it seems as though the movie is trying to make him come off good you know in in some sort of way that there's he has some kind of dark appeal but if that's really true then again the the overall theme of the movie is getting right is getting derailed you know it's going off the rails yeah yeah that was going to be my question i guess like i do think that there is value in seeing a, a protagonist doing horrible things but still you know being unable to kind of look away and actually sometimes uh, relating to them or at least um, um, rooting for them but it doesn't feel like that has anything to do with what we are watching here Um, you know I guess the, the 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 strongest argument for it is that it helps us 
to feel bad for him when he is transformed. But on that point, and I guess I'm wondering if you guys feel the same way, you know, Kubrick felt like he wanted to make what Alex does really bad at the beginning in order to show that even the most horrible person uh, is not, uh, should not be subjected to this kind of treatment. But it doesn't really read that way to me. Like, I actually feel like, I actually feel like, like, what he does is way worse. Like, put, sure, make all these people go through this treatment. (laughs) Like, what you even, it doesn't really even work in his mind. So, like, he's still having these horrible fantasies and he's a terrible person. Like, all that is happening is he's just not beating the crap out of people or murdering anybody. Um, like, I don't feel like Kubrick necessarily really sells to me the idea that this is, this Ludovico treatment is bad. Like, even though I, like, philosophically think that it's bad and that people shouldn't be subjected to something like that, the movie doesn't really sell me on that. Like, I'm not convinced well, that he really shouldn't have gone through that experience. <laughs> and, and, and for, and for most of that, uh, we, we dropped the narration during his Ludovico, you know, a lot of it. Um, he stops narrating his feelings and his thoughts during that uh, that after conditioning before he uh, before he ends up in the house uh, where he's uh, uh, you know the house of the per. So you know we have his before conditioning in which Alex and his droogs uh, beat up a homeless man. Then they break into a house. They rape a woman in front of her husband after terrorizing them. Then they. You know they get into a fight with some another gang. Um, so you see that. Then he's in prison. He goes through his conditioning, and then after his conditioning, he revisits those three steps again. But during all that, the conditioning before conditioning and conditioning, you have a lot of his narration telling you how he's thinking, how he's feeling, giving us a sense of the language, um, what they're doing, and how he enjoys it. After his conditioning, he drops the drops a lot of that inner monologue, and that portion there is where we still need it. I think because he is in the in the book, you still see him thinking and feeling all those same horrible things, but he literally has to stop and do the opposite of it to be able to make the horrible feeling go away. So in in the movie, Kubrick really just has it be a visual thing of he looks sick, he makes the froggy noises, looks like he's about to vomit, but is forced to do the things that people ask him to do to kind of get out of it. Whereas in the novel, he he literally is like, oh, I'm going to punch that guy in the face and make his blood flow and it's going to be awesome. And then he starts feeling sick and he says, Oh shoot, how do I get out of this feeling? And it's it's all self-preservation. It's him still not wanting to feel pain, to feel bad, to feel gross, to feel sick. So he's like uh, uh, the only thing I can think of is to like lick this guy's shoes and kiss his feet and to uh really uh supplicate myself in front of him to make that feeling go away because I notice the feelings going away when I do that. Or the girl, he's thinking those horrible thoughts. And it's not like this force where he wants, like, he goes to touch her. As soon as he starts thinking about the old in-out with this girl that comes on the stage, he automatically feels disgusting and actually 
is forces himself to have a polite conversation with her to make mm-hmm. the feeling go away. Like a normal sit down at tea, how was your day, how was the weather, you look lovely today kind of thing to make himself feel better about it. So there's a more defined sense of what the Ludovico treatment or Ludovico uh, process is in the book. And in the film, he doesn't really focus on Alex's inner thinking anymore at that point, which I think that is one of those points where we need it the most, is to understand what is happening and what is going on. And instead, it just seems like you want to do something bad, you feel sick. And that's it. Like, there yeah. is no Well, the his thing I'm struck working. with there is not the, that, that, that we're not hearing the thought process by it, but we never see him do anything good to no. make the feeling go away. We, we just see him have a bad feeling, and then people do whatever they want to him. Um, yeah. Which, again, feels like... Uh, uh, power you know that that they're they have this power over him yeah uh both in terms of the fact that he wants to do or really ultimately he just wants to defend himself in all of these situations um at, but he's unable to and then people use their power over him as opposed to being forced to make a good choice which he never actually makes a good choice he's just he's just helpless in these situations yeah, it's, it's, it, it does it a disservice, I think. I think going back to the unevenness. And this is where, you know, going even a little back further when we were talking about people taking the wrong points from this film is there's that, you know, we do. We're set up to just feel bad for him. And so it's like, oh, man, that sucks. He can't, like, he's just completely, uh, he has no no free will no choice no anything and even though he's you know we just witnessed some horrible horrible things happen to him by the end of that section uh when he's stuck up in that room screaming and willing to kill himself you know kubrick is definitely putting the audience into position of sympathy for that character and i don't think he deserves sympathy and i don't think that it it, it becomes so odd that like there's no rectifying the things he has done unless there were far more uh instances of us connecting with him or seeing him in a different light that allows us to see change or growth of some nature and the fact that he doesn't grow uh makes it even (laughs) more hard to take at the end because his you know, he hasn't he hasn't changed except for now he's having uh, the woman is on top and there's a polite society around clapping for him. Like that is that is the that is his. Right. I'm it looks awesome. Now. Right. <laughs> I'm an adult. now. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a I'm lot accepted. of fun. <laughs> you know, that whole that whole that whole conditioning sequence, Travis, just to play off what you're saying. Another way I think it's it's kind of undercut is. Again, just the, the the artifice of everything that's happening prevents me from taking seriously the idea that he's really suffering in, in any kind of deep way. Yeah. Uh, the the tone again, that kind of tone of irony that's just running through the whole the whole mm. thing. Once he's there uh, suffering, uh, undergoing the treatment and, and after the treatment, 
like you say, we don't we don't get enough of his interior, you know, to to get a sense that the suffering is real. But on top of the, the suffer, that, the suffering is substantial or meaningful. But on top of that, there's another element which we we can talk about now or later or throughout, uh, which is the the music. Yeah, mm. undercuts so much of what happens throughout the movie. But I'm thinking of the beginning of this sequence in particular. It's actually before he's started the conditioning. It's when he's first gotten to the to the to the prison, uh, and we have this very mournful music and alex says you know and now we come to the really sad part of the story you know and yeah and the thing is that you you can't read that narration the tone or the music in, in any other way than ironic i think like are we really sad you know yeah. <laughs> or is this alex dramatizing you know the sadness of it all uh and we're and so again i feel it sort of goes back to something i said earlier like the 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 story pushes us away from authentically being able to sympathize with Alex's plight uh, because it just keeps undercutting. It, it keeps coloring our responses in, in a certain way such that you have to stand back from it, you know, and, and you, you can't say, oh, what a terrible thing Alex is going through. Cause when I, when I watch that sequence, I think, no, it's still Alex. And, and Alex isn't really real, and none of this is really real, you know. No. So, so what ex- again? What exactly am I meant to, you know, extract uh, from from this sequence? You know, I don't think I've ever really, until you just put it into words just a second ago, I don't think I've really completely thought about it as Alex sitting in a bar telling this story to someone else, right? Like. This is the first that like you saying that and I'm now I'm going, oh, my God, that just makes like it it clicks it like if there was a last scene of Alex at the milk bar, all old and bedraggled and looking like shit with blue hair, talking to some old ladies and telling this story, this whole movie would make a perfect sense because everything would be the gross characterization, the grotesquerie of everyone that isn't him, the the whole like Wild West uh, spaghetti western uh, bar fight of broken chairs and broken tables uh, during the, the 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 battle versus the other gang. I mean, that's right out of like an old western movie. Like they're throwing them through tables and smashing chairs off their heads, and it is so over dramatize including the music choices and including all that other business it's uh well and think of how alex's own imagination is is this kind of lurid overblown yeah i saw it in a movie you know kind Definitely. of kind of visualizing yeah and the, the problem is you know that the movie doesn't ever really it doesn't theme it doesn't make a theme out of the idea mm. that this is all alex remembering all of this you know that this yeah. is alex you know kind of pulling your leg in a way like or, you know exaggerating the story or, or what have you what do you feel like this movie would be like without the narration if it was just you know a presentation of of what we're seeing as opposed to hearing from alex is it possible interesting um it would be a yorgos lanthimos film <laughs> <laughs> that weird over the top acting. Does, that... Yeah, there is a dog tooth vibe for sure in this yeah. film. Yeah. Um I don't 
Yeah, I don't know if it. I don't know if it. Mm. I'll have to think about that. Well, That's you know, I would say that. Uh, hmm. One one thing that the narr- I'll say one thing that the narration does is it is it reinforces Alex as a kind of charismatic figure. You know, it it makes him intriguing, interesting, colorful. You know, uh, right. And so it re- it does it reinforces an image of Alex that the movie is putting forward um so if it were removed well it's interesting I mean, like what happened when they removed the voiceover from blade runner you know another dystopian mm. film you know what did what did that do and one thing well I'll, you know just to follow the thought out one thing that it did for me with blade runner is uh it made the environment of the story into the voiceover like where the envi- where the the, o- the overall mise en scene became mm. the commentary on what was happening to like Rick Deckard, you know, to to what was happening to our central character, like the the environment is making is the commentary. Um, the environment is reframing or commenting on you know what we're seeing, and I have to wonder. So if 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 Alex was no longer allowed to control control the viewpoint would the rest of the environment kind of jump out at us more and would it seem more about more about the world you know that it's that it's taking place yeah. in some way you could almost discount the narrative uh, the uh, narration because most of the time he is speaking in nadsat which is yeah. if you're you don't understand uh and but the narration just gives you more of a tone like yeah I'm happy, I'm angry, I'm sad, like, I'm horny. Like, that's it. Like, that's the tones you get from him, as opposed to actual information, uh, like a subtextual information or inner monologue of, like, feelings or thoughts. It seems to be more of a broad, like, colored mood chart of, of Alex, as opposed to anything else, which... If there's any subtext to the to the voiceover for me, it's you know you you're saying like you know I'm I'm angry I'm horny I'm happy whatever I also for me it's also I'm performing yeah you know, uh, I'm yeah. performing I'm yeah. putting forward a, a persona you know and and so your and faithful it, narrator your faithful yeah, yeah exactly exactly and and you know rem, yeah so the question would be what is when that performance is is removed I mean. Still, Alex, you know, Alex in the movie is still performing. He's performing throughout. There's an there's an artifice and Machiavellianness every step of the way, you know. Uh, so, but that's a really interesting. I'm gonna really have I'm gonna have to think about that one. I mean, there's almost like a uh, Annie Hall thing going on. <laughs> like it's a little bit like you know, like because there's so many like fantasy moments in Annie Hall where he's cutting away that couldn't be done without the narration in the film. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, I think you would have to cut those fantasy moments here if there was no narration. And to to your point, Ken, I, I mean, if it, if you are using the world to to craft uh, the uh, the sort of framing device uh, of the movie. I mean, Kubrick and, and, you know, we've been kind of dumping on the film, but I, I do find the film incredibly visually engaging. Sure. Um, and, you know, basically like, this is almost like the spinal tap 11, you know, putting up to 11 mm. Kubrick style here. You know I mean? The, the, the distortion with, with, with the, with the wide angle lenses, 
Um, you know, I mean, I love the um, rear projection uh, on the uh, on the driving scene. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and you know, and uh, this was before Steadicam, so he just sat the camera on a wheelchair um, for for those tracking shots. But they're they're awesome. I mean, the, the, you know, the the shot of him walking into the um, uh, to the record store, the the costume design. Uh, you know, I love Wendy Carlos's score here. It's super awesome. Um, those elements are, to me, more interesting and engaging than Alex's character in any way, because Alex's character is so one-dimensional that, you know, I almost feel like I would be more challenged by the movie by get, getting Alex out of the way a little bit, because it does really become this kind of lionization of this character it feels like a like a legend as opposed to a a fable in a way Mm -hmm. interesting you know speaking of the technical aspects this is something i wanted to address to to travis one thing that i was really i I, you know i'm fascinated by the the craft of the movie you know and really like you know although we're we're being critical of the movie it's it's more like this movie has a whole pile of incredibly strong elements that, Mm. but they don't gel. Like that's the, you know, like every individual piece of it is great, but the pieces kind of float free from each other or interfere with each other in a certain way. So the one, one visual thing that I was really struck by, um, uh, and I think, you know, Travis, with your experience with lighting, you might have something to say of it, about it. I was just struck by the very consistent use of this kind of ultra bright, cold, often single point lighting, you know, where you, you're often the source of light is just like some kind of searchlight that's just out of frame, mm-hmm. some kind of spotlight. Uh, you know, we get it. Uh, in the alleyway, uh, where they when they beat up the uh, the the old man, we get it in the theater, like when when the droogs first enter the theater. There's just this blinding light coming in from the outside. We get it in the theater itself, the the projection room where he's getting conditioned, and then again in the in the theater sequence, you know, where it's being demonstrated. But it's happening throughout, and sometimes that lighting is very like low key, where it's just super dark shadows and there really is just one light source and then other times it's super duper high key where everything is just bathed in this kind of blinding cold white light and i was just very i was struck by that device you know and i don't it's not it's not so much i have a technical question i I guess it's i'm really addressing it to to both of you you know what what does that because it's such a consistent choice you know throughout the movie what does that do? You know, what, what well, is what is achieved, you know, by by taking that decision? Well, now that you've helped me by putting one puzzle piece into this puzzle that I've uh, watched this film over the years, it just builds completely into that narrative of he's the star of his own story. Because I was going to bring up the composition in which he is the center of almost every shot. Right. Um, any shot that he is in, he is generally the middle of the shot. Um, he's either the top of the triangle or the front of the triangle. He's always there as the center of whatever it is he's doing. Um, and that, that lighting choices also add to the aspect of there's a spotlight on him on his stage. Um, and it's a, and it's a constant throughout the film. Um, 
you know, and even when we get into the the scenes where he's in a house or because the only times where the movie feels less theatrical in terms of kind of like some of its lighting is when he's in his room away from the world. Um, it's just kind of normal lighting. There's nothing over the top or kind of out there that's going on. But when he gets outside into the world and he's in his costume and he's he's putting on his performance that's when he is always seems to be like just uh, you know <laughs> always has a nice big edge like that's following him around somewhere and uh he's always in the spotlight but yeah just <laughs> i can't believe that i've seen this movie probably like eight times and it is like this is why i love this podcast this is why i love talking to you guys is like that like all of a sudden it's just like yeah, this is all from his perspective. Like, what? And it's like, <laughs> click, and then all this stuff is like falling into place. All these pieces that I've been thinking about uh, for, you know, that were disjointed in my mind are now starting to tie together into a, a stronger theme. Yeah. Um, and makes me have to now go watch the movie again, which is great. <laughs> that's why I like movies. I like watching movies again and again. Um, no, but that's, uh, yeah, the... Uh, the visuals uh, going back it it is it is a vis- it is a super visually strong movie yeah. and uh Matt you were saying earlier like Kubrick made the choice to make it as visually interesting as possible to make up for who knows l- lack of production value or lack of uh story or whatever it is that he was feeling that was missing from the film um he overcompensated with the visuals for sure. I, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, you could make the argument that he intentionally overcompensated in order to distort this future world that he was trying to construct or to distort, uh, the world from the perspective of his unreliable and, uh, sociopathic, uh, narrator. Narrator. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because um, a I lot think, of the er, a lot of the early shots are like tableaus. Yeah, you pull back and it's totally. like a yeah, yeah, which which obviously he would employ to um, to more greater and more consistent effect in his uh, next movie. Um, mm-hmm. But I I don't I I don't feel like even just that first shot of Alex, which is so striking and so memorable. What is the purpose of that shot? within the themes of the film and that's the thing that that's what continues to confuse me and and i think when you talk about something like oh you didn't even notice that this is from his perspective you know i i probably saw this movie four or five times when i was a teenager um i have not seen it since i don't think i completely forgot the second half of this movie i thought (laughs) i straight up thought this movie was just like he uh, he goes through the treatment at the end and then he, uh, you know, tries to kill himself and then he, I was cured all right. You know, that last shot. Yeah. I completely forgot he goes back to his flat. He goes to his, you know, he, he meets his, his former droogs. All of that stuff was gone from my memory because that sequence is much less visually interesting than mm-hmm. anything else true. in the movie. And most of almost all of what I remembered from this film was uh, the the kind of visual styling of the movie because it is uh, it overwhelms everything else to me. Um, you know, perhaps the only other thing that I really remembered was uh, 
the use of Beethoven, which we've mentioned um, a little bit. But um, I did want to ask about that before we uh, get get to any uh, further topics. Just the idea that he loves Beethoven and what you guys think of that choice uh, and kind of uh, how it ties into the movie or if it if it ties into other elements in the movie at all. Well, that's uh, that's one of those undermined topics that, uh, you know, that I don't think uh, Kubrick did the justice it deserved. Um, it's really the only redeemable quality of Alex that he's willing to, he has, like, that's the only thing that he seems to have a set of values or a code for. Um, he's willing to, uh, you know, to put himself out there in the bar and kick the, you know, slap dim or whatever he does with dim to stop him from ruining something beautiful. And it's the one thing that he's, you know, he truly, you know, he, it's almost like you could say he goes around robbing and stealing and killing so he could get money so he could buy music. And it, and then to have that be the one thing that's taken away from him that he truly is the only thing that truly hurts him. Like everything else about it, he's watching these movies of this horrible, horrible visuals and this graphic stuff. And it's even more uh, disturbing um, because there's a lot more like concentration camp type footage and stuff like that in in the in the book that Kubrick really didn't show in the movie so much and yeah he used triumph of the will instead yeah yeah and the only thing that bothers him is that oh wait I recognize because in 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 the book he he has a love for all classical music right like he knows Mm. everything and in the movie I mean I can understand it makes it easier to have a shorthand of just loving one composer um but it is it's probably the only thing that kind of like all of this horrible stuff that everyone has done in the world, all the evil choices that everyone has made. There has been good choices in the fact that art has come out of this society like that. That's kind of like a theme that should have been a little more spotlit, a little more focused on because that, in that section, that is where all the good comes out of this horrible society. Because if you know, if you you know, if you subscribe to the idea that um, our number one pinnacle crowning achievement as as a society is the creation and expression of art, then that could be a very strong theme in this movie. Is Listen, everything that this guy has done and everything that is valued, it's worth having free choice because these people can create X, Y, and Z, which is what we have to value in our society. It isn't strong enough, and so therefore it isn't redemptive enough, and it just becomes a thing that it sucks for Alex that he loses his music. But then again, when he finally does get his music and it does inspire him again, it's, you know obviously still in the wrong way but i think that's that's one of the themes that is dropped in this movie that could have been stronger and been more redemptive for me for this film it's kind of it's it's just to add a side thought to that i i think it's undercut even further in the movie because 
Alex directly states that like the it, the only piece of music that he has this response to is Beethoven's Ninth. <clears throat> you know, like that's because that was involved with the conditioning. And he says explicitly in the film, you know, other music, you know, I'm fine. And and to me, that just kind of deflates or derails uh, once again, you know, any idea that he's deprived because in a sense, he's been deprived of this one little hobby horse, you know, mm-hmm. that he likes to ride, but he hasn't been deprived of music as a whole, mm-hmm. which would be a much, which, you know, would be a much more vivid and total deprivation, you know, if it were happening. And yet for some reason, and I, I can't, this is one place where I just can't even figure out why, you know, Travis, you were saying that it, it could just be a kind of shorthand move, you know, on, on, on Kubrick's part, but Kubrick even kind of emphasizes it. Like, no, I can listen to other music, you know, but not, but not the ninth. Um, so it, 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 it loses its, seriousness you know it 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 loses its its uh scope cement uh in in his essay on this film makes the point that alex misunderstands beethoven that rather than look at this work of art as you know a, a force of of good or of grace or of um, praising god or whatever that he misinterprets it as just a show of vitality uh, do you guys agree with that? Do you think that Alex uh, is um, using is misusing his art? I think that the movie does. I mean, the the movie does fairly vividly convey the idea that for Alex, Beethoven's music is this great soundtrack to this crazy movie in Alex's head, you know, of destruction and 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 all of that stuff. So that there's a way in which the music is. Uh, I guess being appropriated by Alex in a in in a questionable, you know, sort of sort of way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll go I'll go that far. Um, I don't know if I mean so say it, I mean, he is being sort of. I suppose you could say he's being presented as an unreliable art consumer. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> uh, you know that that is true, um, and I suppose the 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 you know don't really want to put it this way but kubrick would say that yes and he should be allowed to consume art unreliably you know that that he shouldn't have the ability you know taken away from him you know yeah that that, that's what's you know even though it may be compromised i guess i look at it as an intentional contradiction in alex to me um you know i i think the purpose of including that piece of music is to show kind of the height of you know, human production, essentially, and that Alex is able to appreciate that uh, and sort of see the inherent decency and potential for good in um, humanity, uh, while at the same time reappropriating it to fit into his own distorted worldview. Hmm. And that aspect of it makes it more appealing to me, but it also feels super clunky. Because, like, just using the way that Kubrick used classical music in 2001 was so graceful and um, really felt like he was adding something to both the music and uh, his visuals at the same time. They were kind of working so well together to help hold each other up and recontextualize them. Uh, 
here it just feels like he's using this significant piece of art as a placeholder for something that is deficient in the narr- in the narrative of the film. You know, I'm <clears throat> I'm struck by uh, you know there, the 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 use of music in 2001 is is really wonderful, but there is sort of a carryover because the um, yeah the I mean just you know the 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 use of pre-existing music you know as as a as a, a device um, in the the Blue Danube sequence in 2001. You know, on the one hand, the music brings out you know the the dance the grace and the dance-like quality of of what is happening you know in 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 orbit and so on but there is an irony i would say also in that sequence because to me like the blue danube waltz has a certain kind of stuffy classical quality there's a you know there's a kind of there's a kind of arrogance or, you know, uh, opulence, opulence, uh, you know, uh, that, that, so, so I remember showing that sequence to, a, to some animation students and I was saying, and I asked, because I was really curious if anyone else was picking up on this, you know, what does the music do for this sequence? Like, what does it make you feel? And people were saying different things and talking about the grace and the grandeur and so on. But someone said, it makes it all seem kind of silly. and i thought that was absolutely true you know that there is oh and and now in this movie kubrick just runs that you know up the flagpole and 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 that and it's just running throughout where the the music is constantly under undercutting uh the on-screen action and it's almost all ironic uh and and so again there's this sort of quality of of the film pushing us away um, using the music to push us away uh, from 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 what we're seeing, um, but I don't know. I, I I feel that just to return to my original thing, you know, it just seems that Alex may be an unreliable consumer of music, but that the film thinks he ought to be allowed to be that. You know, I'm I'm not certain that the movie says much more than that. Um, well, let's talk about unreliable consumers of art now. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's a lot of them with this movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I try not to hold uh, art responsible for the fans it produces. Uh, I enjoy quite a number of Grateful Dead records, for example. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I think that it's okay to... Uh, to like a movie uh, that, um, you know, well, well, I think it's okay to like a movie that a lot of people like for the wrong reasons um, and not not say that because a large portion of the audience misinterprets its message, uh, the movie is ineffective. But at the same time, there are a few movies in history, I think, that have been uh, misinterpreted as much as, or at least uh, held up for the wrong reasons as much as as this film has. And, Scarface. Well, I was just going to say, <laughs> I was just going to say there are there are since this film there have been a number of them. Uh, Scarface and Fight Club come to mind mm. uh, most immediately for me, um, and Breaking Bad and TV for sure. Um, and I guess uh, you know I I'm curious to hear what you guys think about the uh, sort of cult that has been generated around this movie 
and how that informs your reading of the film. And, and, and just generally, if you guys think that, um, a movie that, uh, that conveys a, the wrong, the unintended message or practically the opposite message of what it's intending to convey, um, is, uh, is somehow ineffective at doing what it's intending to do. Well, for me, for what, how I view it, how I view this unintentional, like a uh, cult of a cult following of this film is, uh, it always ends up being something of age with me. Um, you know, if the 14, 15 year old Travis who saw this movie is completely different from the 42-year-old Travis who saw this movie. And I can now see all the things I liked about the movie when I was 14 are in no way what I like about the movie at 40. And I think there is a flaw in that some people don't revisit in terms of perspective. And so it stays as a dorm room poster on the wall, and that is the pure, uh, epitom- like that is the pure pinnacle of what that movie meant to someone, and it will never, it'll never change. Yeah. It, it's kind of like that. It's, it's all through social media right now. Don't ruin things from my childhood. And if you saw this at a certain age when you were younger and it resonated with the destructive, libidoous, id-driven, you know, toxic masculinity of, you know, early male adolescence that doesn't have some sort of checks and balances in place and you just revel in the destructive nature of it, then... And you don't ever go back to check it and to reevaluate it, then I can see how this could resonate or speak to a whole group of people. Um, I think we talked to John Lobinger a while back, and he said that you know when he first saw this movie in high school, he went back to his you know the teacher who told him to go see it and was talking about how funny it was and how exciting it was and she just was so disappointed in him <laughs> that he didn't get it and you know we, you know he corrected later and said oh my god it wasn't until later that I really realized what this movie's about and stuff and I think that is the casual moviegoer or the person who just doesn't allow themselves to grow up much like Alex in the film isn't allowed to grow up it's almost like this movie is is a perfect you know a perfect example of that never revisiting never reevaluating yourself your life your priorities and being stuck and frozen in this this just really this should have been a short period of your life and really it just kind of just stayed that way i don't know it's i'm having a hard time putting it into words that's very clear. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I think that you know, and it, uh, there there's a place where the movie, you know, has a very strong kind of meta quality, which is when he is uh, undergoing the treatment, and he sees basically Droogs beating somebody up, right? That's one of the films that Alex is shown, mm-hmm. and it's a very meta moment, you know. And I think one of the things that you know, Kubrick. I, I, I will I will assume Kubrick is intentionally trying to say here is like 
how is our situation in the audience different from Alex's? You know, we're 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 not being we're we're not being forced, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to watch a Clockwork Orange, you know, in the sense that Alex is being forced to watch a Clockwork Orange. And I just want to say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to make a side point on my side point here. Apropos of of meta levels of the movie, it occurred to me the last time I watched this the other day that. Um, one way in which the unreality and the kind of all-pervasive badness of the film would be totally coherent is if this film was a film from the world represented in the film. You know, like mm. it's, a, it's a completely distorted, bizarre, grotesque, you know, bad vibe artifact from this grotesque bad vibe universe. You know, this this is the movie that the Lud- Ludovico people show you know their 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 uh patients it was just a it's just a passing thought yeah the last scene instead of uh, alex telling the story at the bar you zoom out to to people <laughs> like with their with their uh eyelids taped open watching the credits <laughs> of the orange yeah i mean i i don't take this thesis seriously this is one of those like you know yeah. here's a way of explaining all the dissonances you know this well, is why Admiral I, Holdo couldn't tell Poe Dameron. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll, I'll make it coherent, you know. But uh, but still, like I, I think the movie is aware. The movie is aware of the situation of the viewer, you know, at, 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 that the viewer has a situation. Yeah, and I think that situation is enriched by the fact that this is a movie, uh, almost about cinema's ability to prevent violence you show these violent acts to somebody and then they no longer want to perform those violent acts uh, with a little bit of, of, uh, of drugs uh, to help you along there. Um, <laughs> but, but then it, it, it's the movie itself became the target of attacks on the power of cinema to cause violence yeah. um, that you see these acts performed and then you want to go out and, uh, and have those uh, and perform those acts yourself. There's a there's a kind of chapter into to the influence of Clockwork Orange, which I only just recently learned about. You know, the there's that there a number of scenes uh, were filmed like like I was saying earlier at Thamesmead, this London suburb. Uh, you see him walking through this kind of trashed futuristic landscape at the beginning of the film, and then a little bit later when he when he uh, confronts the other Drugs, you know, tosses them into the into the lakeside and all of that. That's all. At ten, that was all filmed at Thames, Thamesmead, which was a, uh, you know, a housing development. Uh, you know, there was massive amounts of this kind of housing being built in kind of the post-war in, in post-war England. You know, there was just lots of destroyed stuff that needed to be cleared away, uh, lots of slums needing clearing, and so there was a, a big push to do this. And Thamesmead was one of the kind of poster children for this kind of building. And this kind of buildup, you know, that was going on. And, you know, Kubrick selected it as the location. And after the movie came out, Thamesmead, its reputation plummeted because everybody associated it with A Clockwork Orange and just assumed that it was just a hotbed of danger and violence, you know, which it wasn't. At least it wasn't any more than any of the other housing, you know, similar housing developments of the day. Because they all had like, you know, there would be, you know, there were gangs and there was graffiti and there, you know, all of the things that you would, you would associate with these kinds of projects were there, but it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't mayhem. 
you know, there were community programs and there were church groups and there was a local radio station. And like, it was an interesting place. Like there was a lot of stuff going on. But I was reading a history of Thamesmead the other day and they were saying that when they were putting the history of the place together in the 90s, like 25 years after Clockwork Orange, people were still comparing it. They were still talking about it in relation to Clockwork Orange 25 years later. And that for a long time, that suburb had a very hard time bringing in teachers, like public school teachers, because they were specifically afraid of going to this terrible, dangerous place. It was especially amazing considering the fact that nobody in England saw the movie for 20 years, uh, <laughs> you know, up to, for that point. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, so there was like a dec a literal decades long curse on this area. And I think it's a really interesting, like, so there was, a, there was this really significant impact that it had on one location. And I think this speaks to kind of a larger point um, about A Clockwork Orange that, can be applied to other films as well. Um, I don't know if we will have time for it, but, you know, Kubrick saw Thamesmead. And of course, the main reason he used Tem- the place was because of what it looked like. It, it had this futuristic look. Mm. But then he, di- you know, but it didn't look like a dump. You know, he, that, all of that was added, you know, by the, by the, the production designers. Uh, he decided this is going to be my dystopia. You know, like I'm, I'm going to take this place and I'm going to make it you know, into a dystopia. And to me, that's almost like metaphorical for kind of what I feel about the movie, you know, that, that I'm going to, I'm going to have, I'm going to tell this story about freedom of will, but I'm going to impose this vision on everything in such a relentless way that it kind of undercuts or derails and it, it, it makes it makes the it makes everything kind of inorganic. You know, it makes all the different elements of the story not flow inorganically because there's this vision that's being kind of pushed down onto the material um, that that makes it uh, uh, inorganic. So I think there is this really anyway. Just to you know tie it back to what you were saying, you know, there is a it had the the movie had an impact on how people felt. Yeah. about a real landscape you know it, it 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 you know which doesn't have to do with the cult of violence but it does have to do with a certain kind of atmosphere of fear mm-hmm. um and and so i think that's also you know a part of this legacy well one one yeah one interesting thing about that i mean about the the fact that um ostensibly this movie is about free will like and the way that people respond to this movie is basically like people who misinterpret this movie have absolutely no interest in the free will <laughs> issue right, uh, right. of the movie. They are responding to that dystopian um, aesthetic, um, but also to the, the sort of power th- themes that we've talked about here. I mean, I think this is a pretty funny movie. Um, to to John Lobinger's point, <laughs> um, I think it's intentionally funny at a number of times throughout the movie, including the end. I think is intended to be uh, to be funny, um, not necessarily ha ha funny, but hmm funny. Um, and I think uh, all of that humor ultimately is directed at people in in power in a way that undercuts their authority. Um, and I think that's really what is most appealing, perhaps. I mean, I, I, I'm not gonna. Um, 
conf- you know, say definitively that that's what's really going on here. But I think that's a lot of what's appealing to young teenagers or young men about this movie is the the idea of Alex as this um, individualist in a sea of silly, powerful people that are trying to tell you what to do and um, you don't want to let them, uh, you know, you're, you're going to do whatever it takes to, uh, to overcome that. Um, and in that way, Clockwork Orange is different from the two movies that we just mentioned, Scarface and Fight Club, which to me, the, the people who misinterpret those movies are responding directly to the themes of the movie. It's just that they are taking them in the exact opposite way that they were intended to be taken. Um, so, you know, with, with Fight Club, there, there is this, this um, push, push and pull between toxic masculinity and the idea of, like, you know, asserting yourself in a world that is no longer um, embracing uh, masculinity. And, of, of course, that that is intended to be satirical and poking fun at the idea that men need to act this way or, or have this, this drive within them. But people look at it and say, yeah, I don't want to shop at Ikea. I want to beat the crap out of somebody. Um, Mm. whereas here people, I think people have almost no interest in, in what is the central, you know, driver here. And they're really looking at these other things that are still, I think, interesting in the movie and 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 can be discussed at, at length as we've done here but um they're not really what the movie is about um and that's what has has been built up around the film and and a lot of the criticism of this movie at the time was directed at it uh, being fascist which i think is is super absurd and really was mm. just um you know more just what was in the water at the time. And I think, you know, if you look, compare uh, this movie was frequently compared to straw dogs, um, which came out around the same time, which is way more explicitly violent, um, way more fascist in my opinion. Um, and, and sort of, uh, a lot more kind of, you know, about just kind of like the ugliness of, of humanity. And I think that this movie is, is, um, when taken the wrong way, I think is, is much more nihilistic. And I think the nihilism is the appealing, um, element to those teenagers where it's just kind of, Alex is kind of a guy that just wants to watch it all burn. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's punk rock. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly. This, uh, it's this, yeah. Nihilism and doing whatever you want to do to, so you can not be a part of the system. Yeah. Cause in, you know, and we're, you know, we talked about the power structures in this movie, you know, this like it's it's this strange uh, this future that we've set up in this film is like this weird mix of kind of like almost like failing communism, socialism into this uh, totalitarianism type state like the like the power progression throughout the film, you know, with the with the youth speaking this like partially russian dialect slang language and you know people all were all have to have a job adults all have to have a job and so these youth are kind of left to run the streets and kind of do whatever they want because they're not of age yet to have to be conformed into the system which you know we see later as alex alex gets out of uh, the treatment and is released into the world and his friends now have jobs and of course you know where do you put these violent people that love power and love hurting other people you make them police officers um you know which is (laughs) 
a fantastic statement. And uh, unfortunately, you know, history has shown us pretty true. Um, when I was a, when my father was a kid, him and his best friend got into a whole hell of a lot of trouble one time, and they were giving the option of jail or army or join the police force mm. my dad joined the army and his friend joined the police force and when i was a kid that, that cop was like running rampant all over town doing whatever he wanted and you know it didn't change him but that idea of what do we do with these unruly youth put him in charge is a horrible, horrible idea. <laughs> and, uh, you know, something that did not, you know, uh, did not escape Kubrick and Anthony Burgess's concepts of, like, kind of like how our system moves and how our system moves people into these positions of power. So you take the, you know, the uneducated, violent youth and put them as your enforcers so you can still control them and everyone else. It's... It's it's that's one of the things that I think is interesting about this film that a lot of people aren't paying attention to because they're paying attention to the violence and the nihilism yeah. and how cool everything looks in terms of Alex's, you know, presentation and his bravado. I think it's very telling that that the, the when the minister of the interior first shows up at the prison and meets and sees Alex for the first time, he likes him right away. Like mm-hmm. it, there's there's a very there's a very clear recognition of a kind of kindred spirit um that happens there uh it, you know it's only fleeting but you can see that there there is some kind of mutual uh recognition going on there and yeah. and to you know uh, i think it's two thoughts you know i i think it's striking for, uh that matthew what you were saying earlier that you know you sort of remember the earlier part of the film more than the later part of the film and i think like what do we all remember? You know, we all remember the singing in the rain scene yeah. Or, yeah. or what have you. We don't really remember the treatment, you know, at least mm. not, not in the same way, you know. And again, to compare with the book, in the book, the treatment sequence is incredibly sinister. You know, there's a real tonal shift where you're like, oh, my God, you know, this is serious trouble coming down here. Uh, and that just doesn't come through in the movie. And just as a side observation, it may be a problem with transferring from one medium to another, you know, something that works in a book, you know, Burgess talks about how he used the language, the NADSAT language as a way of of distancing us from the violence in the book, you know, so that we don't get caught up in the luridness of it all because we're getting this kind of, you know, this kind of fascinating text that's getting between us and the, and the violence um whereas when it's all translated into film you just you just get it you get it straight and it chain and again it creates a distortion in emphasis yeah i actually have a quote uh from him about that that i uh that i had had in my back pocket here he said he said to tolchak a chelovec in the kishkas does not sound so bad as booting an old man in the guts but in a film yeah. little can be implied Everything has to be shown. Language ceases to be an opaque protection against being appalled and takes a very secondary place. Um, that that reminded me of Lolita a lot. You know, um, the, mm. the use of, essentially, the use of pedophilia as a literary device uh, for obsession um, is much easier uh, in a book 
where you're not watching a man seduce a little girl, um, then when there are visuals uh, to to see the actual thing happening, it's no longer uh, a metaphor. Um, and it, it, it feels in some ways like Kubrick made the same mistake here that he made in Lolita, the, uh, the confidence that um, there, there seems to be an overconfidence in cinema's ability to convey through its own inherent grammar um, the same things that can be conveyed with language, pure language. And yet at the same time, there is a underestimation of the power of visuals, which almost seems silly that I'm saying that Kubrick underestimated the power of visuals, mm -hmm. but it does, I do wonder if, if he just fully didn't fully understand how powerful, uh, what he created was here and, and how, right. how much, how, how, how strongly a certain subset of the population or really just everybody would respond to it and just in different directions. Yeah, I don't think he understood it until it was released to the world and then he had to rein it back in because, you know, it it, it did it did premiere and it was shown in the UK. I think it it was shown for yeah. half a year, yeah. maybe more, maybe a year, and he was the one who petitioned Warner Brothers to pull it because of the violence that was occurring, because of the protests that was happening, him and his family were getting death threats because in reaction to uh, two particular crimes that were directly brought up by, by lawyers in the criminal cases, directly pointing to that film as the source of the inspiration for this violent crimes. And I think, yes, he underestimated like like you said like we said like from you know the Lolita episode as well he took the literal out of the book and put it visually which you can't be subtle subtextual or you know lyrical in terms of what we're visually seeing yeah and instead of like you know you know, panning the camera away when something violent's about to happen or cutting to something else or using the cinema language to suggest violence or suggest brutality, he focuses on it. He puts a spotlight on it and he puts <laughs> Alex in the center of that spotlight. And so there is no way of masking this stuff and letting a deeper meaning come out because it is so in your face that it's hard to get beyond it and remember like t and tonally too he so insistently makes every th the victims are not allowed to be true victims yeah. they are they are they are mm. they are all gross you know and weird yeah. as well you know the 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 the, the cat lady's death you know, is made into this kind of obscene joke, uh, right. and it's played in effect for laughs, uh, and uh, and that runs throughout. You know, no, the victims er, because everybody is held up as grotesque. I think that's where the nihilism comes from that you're talking about, Travis. You know, not, mm. nothing is allowed to 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 be redeemable. You know, uh, nothing yeah. is allowed to. You know, they're victims, but they're really awful. You know, the 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 government that's doing this to Alex is bad, but the opposition is just as bad, too. You know, and yeah. so there's that yep. kind of across the board 
dismissal. And I think that that tonality is what makes that kind of, that kind of, call it a misinterpretation, you know, possible. That there, yeah. it, it continually, it continually puts you, it, it perf- the movie performs an attitude towards its own material where you you have no other place but to you have to laugh at the victims you have to laugh at everybody you know yeah and and yeah and the one one the one place where i would disagree with you travis is that you know that he he actually does cut away um you know before the rape happens uh in the singing in the rain scene he we also don't see the cat lady's head bashed in you know which which he probably would not have been able to get away with at the time um But uh, interestingly, as I mentioned, both of those uh, things as sort of the things that he cuts away from, that's exactly the kind of violence that we see in graphic detail and irreversible. Um, yeah. You know, and 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 you you really feel the impact of it in, in that movie. I, I mean, I think there's a little bit of a provocateur element that is distasteful in that film. Um, but I think for Clockwork Orange, you know, I'm I'm grateful that I don't need to sit through the rape of that woman in the mm. sinking in the rain scene, but at the same time, I think it's to the detriment of the film that we don't see his his crime happening um, because we we are are therefore unable to fully comprehend the um, the impact of his violence, and it it makes the the scene I think more morally ambiguous than it should be because what all we're seeing from him is this sort of carefree um you know uh basically just undressing of a woman yeah performance stripping of a woman um as opposed to you know the actual sexual violence that's being inflicted on her um so it does sort of sanitize the situation in a way that i think hurts the later shift to trying to um you know think of what he goes through in his treatment as somehow worse than uh, what he did to these people. We, we kind of take both of them a little bit more lightly than we otherwise would. It's that, it's that fine line of, of uh, bearing witness to, it's like, a, yeah. it's like a, what's that Susan Sontag book about, uh, you know, bearing with, bearing witness to violence and becoming desensitized to it. Is, is it still serving the same purpose? Uh, I can't remember the name of that book, but uh, I'm sure one of you guys will will be able to remember it. But uh, it's it. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you, Matt. Uh, I guess uh, yeah, the cutting away. And I agree. I think at the time period, I think if he if he made the movie ten twenty years later, that stuff would have been more in the film. I mean, if you go to a uh, Full Metal Jacket. He includes very graphic violence and very graphic rapes, and he allows it to play to really feel the full impact of the loss of humanity of those people. And I think because of the choice of the, seeing the film through the narrator's perspective in Clockwork Orange, it those aren't, you know, I think the, the Alex having sex part or the rape part isn't important to Alex because yeah. the performance leading up to it is what he gets enjo- his enjoyment from. And then right. one of the things I think is a misstep as well is uh, the next day to have him seduce two women and get them up to his apartment and have, and have non-deviant sex with them, non-illegal sex with them. Um, 
humanizes him and makes him into a normal person. Like this is, you know, I, you know, maybe two and, girls at once. Yeah, it makes him into a god to... for teen for teenage boys. Exactly, because yeah. I mean, once again, you know, I know we're harping and going on to the book, but in the book, like they are very underage, and he abuses them to the point where they're crying and slapping him and calling him a beast and trying to leave, and he just keeps pulling, drugging them and pulling them back down to his bed. Mm. And, and he knows, and in the and he knows that they are traumatized. Like yes, explicitly, he, it's not. It's it's. He's not just in some kind of fugue state. He knows he no. he, he is being consciously uh, sadistic. And, yeah, and he and he's loving it. And uh, he, that is not portrayed at all in the film. It's almost comical. There, there, that sex scene because of his in fast motion, it it feels like a funny, light, oh, yeah. humorous thing. Especially if taken out of context. If you were just throw show that scene to someone, people would laugh. And again, you have to ask what is the what is the object of the joke? You know, it's, yeah. it, you know, it's humor in relation to what? You know, it's it's hard to. Again, there's a kind of there's a lot of kind of oddly crass humor running through. Yeah, that. it's thumbing its nose at the at the the tightwads in the audience. To me. Yeah, but again, to what what is the precise? You know, what's the goal? Yeah, I'm not sure there's there is any more goal beyond just saying like you know, like this is beyond, this is beyond convention for you people, for you old people. Um, yeah. You know, that, that again, it just sort of underscores the, the appeal of this movie to, to young men that are no, not, that do not yet have any sort of power or agency in their lives saying that, you know, all of these people around are ridiculous and I can just do whatever I want. And that, and that, and that goes in with our, our theme we touched upon briefly on 2001 which is if 2001 is the hope for the 60s and clockwork orange is the you know the dark realism of the 70s it is the nihilistic everything is wrong everything is growth everything is filthy people are animals and we're you know what do we have to look forward to except for an oppressive system that is going to keep us in check you know it is that counter it is a complete contrast and counter to what 2001 is is uh is uh postulizing is uh, putting out for us and you know and that's why i looked at it as this is the what's happening on earth while scientists and science are out in space trying to bring humanity back to the planet so you could easily see this horrible world and there is the hope of humanity coming back to it with the uh you know the space star baby kind of thing so yeah the one last thing i think we should uh mention is just the again the lack of concern for female characters or for um the incorporating women into the theme or purpose of the film um, and in fact, in this movie, unlike 2001, where they're sort of just a backdrop, they're, they are used and abused in this film in ways that um, dismiss them to an even greater degree uh, than if he had just been ignoring them. And of course, the theme of this movie is when a man is uh, deprived of free will, he's, he, know, he ceases to be a man um, as opposed to... Uh, a human being deprived of free will. Um, 
Mm. And there's not a lot of teenage girls who misinterpret this movie and hold up uh, Alex as being a, a, um, a you know, a, a role model uh, to any degree. Um, and I think this movie also in particular is the movie where Kubrick um, cements his status as primarily a director for men and for young men who are getting into film. Um, and uh, I guess I don't necessarily have a question about that, but I think it's important to point it out for this movie in particular because um, it, it feels more um, just out in the open in this movie than in anything really before. Um, and even to a certain degrees uh, subsequently in his films, um, just how much women are, are props in this movie and not um, anything to be concerned with, uh, despite the seeming ambition of the film to sort of represent a, a genuine moral question. I guess uh, the, the the thing that I would um, the thing that kind of I guess qualifies makes me qualify my sense of like the women being props is is just that it's a story about male street gangs and it's a story about a male and then it happened then we end up in a male prison you know it's it's there is it is sort of innate you know, to the story that women just are on the periphery, uh, of, of this thing. And the same, you know, the same was true of the space program that, you know, of, of 1968 and so on and so forth, uh, uh, or the, you know, the Dr. Strangelove scenario that there, you could say that he's making a choice to tell stories in which women just are not at the center, you know, that these are about masculine, these are male universes, um, right. You know, just it's just innate, you know, in 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 the subject matter. I mean, having said that, yes, you know, the women are props. They are they are sidelined. That's all, you know, that's all true. Um, but because of his, in, I mean, he is interested. Like I said, all the way back at the beginning, you know, it's masculine pathologies that he's interested in. You know, and yeah. what happens when you get a bunch of men together? generally really bad things happen you know and and his and his stories kind of kind of play that out you know play out that that you know that badness uh uh yeah. and and uh and women are sort of naturally as it were not naturally but organically kind of on the periphery of those kinds of stories um but it, that's more of a digressive point than a direct you know addressing of the question <clears throat> that's what i got <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a well it's you know it is a theme it is a constant running uh choice that he has made throughout uh, all of his films that we've seen up to this point um there is a sidelining of women or in this case you know violence against women which um it's it's played out in so many it's played out in such a theatrical way it's i mean not not saying that the violence is theatrical and should be uh justified in terms of its theatrics but um like the scene where we're we witness billy boy and his gang uh about to uh rape a girl in the theater right um 
the choreography of the scene looks like modern dance. There's a push and a pull, and this it it has a quality to it that again artifice. It's so played out as well. I mean, there's five of yeah. them, and they're yeah, and they're it's, just it's, kind of you know. And by the way, and that's three minutes into this movie that that happens. Yeah, and it's a part of that same like uh, it goes into the theme of what uh, Matt a long time ago you asked a question that I don't think we ever really uh, addressed, which was what does that opening shot mean? Like, what what does it have to do with this film? And I always look at it as we're in Alex and we see his world. Then we're in that theater, we see the artifice and the beauty of what this theater is by looking at a, a piece of it. Yeah. And then we pull back to see how gross this world is and how that is decayed. And then we witness this this uh, this thing happening up on the stage that it is, you know... It is just horrible. And then later, um, we we see Alex and the boys about to rape this woman in front of her husband. And what oh, what uh, what I find more insulting than, you know, the violence enacted upon the women is that we're only given the perspective of how the men were affected by this violence. Right, right. So it's... How how tragic and how horribly scarred the man is, even though his wife has killed herself because yeah. of how horribly she was bothered by the incident, or the, the you know the woman being uh, killed with the giant uh, penis statue, uh, the cat lady, and then it's how how horrible it affected Alex because his stuff is gone as reparation for the cats. Um, you know, it's this it's it's always about how it affects the men, which goes on to Ken's point, which was this is about men and what happened to men and men in groups making these decisions, um, which is a running theme in all of Kubrick's work. Um, I don't think we get into any sort of female perspective until his final film which is a is a shame to me that that is his final film because I think he was starting to finally explore those dynamics which would make everything a lot more interesting. Well, and that was actually a movie that he considered making at this time. Yes. Um, it not not in the form that it eventually um manifested, but uh he he was considering that short story uh for an adaptation before this movie. Um and and you can certainly look at his career uh, up to this point and through through his life as um, simply the choices of what um, interested him at the time and and that that's just simply um, how things came together. But I also think um, it inter- these these subjects interested him specifically because he was mostly interested in that male group dynamic or at least Mm. society through the lens of men and men in power and men without power trying to uh assert themselves okay well um the uh can uh you've listened to some of our episodes so you you are probably aware that we uh we rank these movies um within kubrick's catalog um you get to uh you get to rank them overall it's you already mentioned that 2001 would be at the top of your list um where would you uh where would you put 
clockwork in his catalog and sort of how, you know, where else would things kind of be situated? Well, um, I should say that I had, you know, I I didn't see Lolita or Eyes Wide Shut, so I can't, you know, can't speak to the whole lineup. But, um, uh, you know, I uh, having I, I, I would have put, you know, 2001 first uh barry linden actually second um but now paths of glory uh, uh pops up into to second place strangely enough um strange love uh uh is kind of down around number number four um for me um it's very very brilliant but there there are elements of it that i Actually, it has something, uh, some similarities to Clockwork Orange in certain ways um, that prevents it from getting further up. Uh, but then I would put, and then I would, hmm, Clockwork Orange. I'm, I think that I sort of feel about Clockwork Orange kind of the way that I feel about uh, Blade Runner, in the sense that it's a it's a movie that's extraordinarily compelling and has and raises extremely interesting questions and has really strong elements just running right through it that doesn't actually hang together terribly well, you know, and I, I feel Blade Runner is like that. Um, and so I think that Clockwork Orange is an extraordinarily interesting film that is not a masterpiece, you know, basically is, yeah. is how I feel about mm-hmm. it. Right. And in, in the same way that like Blade Runner is an extraordinarily interesting film that is not a masterpiece. Um, and so I suppose I would put, uh for, you know given what i've seen i would put clockwork orange either above or below strange love it would either be number four or number five i th- i think um yeah. in my oh given what i've seen uh that's where i would i would probably put it does that is that clear does that make yeah, sense oh yeah. yeah no that's very clear yeah so what do you think travis um i i agree i agree with ken um right now if we're, I'm keeping my running my running tally, not including the movies we haven't seen. Uh, 2001 is still number one. Paths of Glory number two. Uh, Doctor Strangelove is number three, and then uh, Clockwork Orange number four. I put it above the killing because mm. I think his visual, the visual style, is ramped to the max. And if you shut off the sound of this film, it is a striking thing to behold. And I think that is what edges it out over the tight plotting and uh, the tight plotting and script of the killing, which uh, I consider more of a wonderful script that is, uh, you know, enacted very well. But I think that wherever the failings are in clockwork orange it makes up for it visually for me um so it just it edges it out i mean if honestly if i was to if i was to kind of uh be super honest they would be almost uh opposite sides of a kubrick coin whereas clockwork orange uh, clockwork orange showcases how strong he can be visually as a filmmaker like just pure visual aesthetic and the killing shows off how well he can handle um, dialogue in a tightly scripted film that is, you know, scripted by someone else. I think they they would tie in a list very easily, but just because I'm going to put it just a little bit above the killing. How about you, buddy? 
What do you got? <laughs> uh, so I, uh, we have, we, before going into this, we have the same top four in the same order. Um, mm-hmm. I am going to put this below the killing. Um, okay. I feel very similarly to you about the film, but I, and, and, and in that sense, I enjoy it. Um, and I, I will, I probably think more highly of this film than I do of um, Killer's Kiss and Lolita, which is why I'm ranking it above it. But I almost in some ways find it to be a less successful movie than Lolita. Um, and it's, it, I think it's an example of an extraordinarily well-made movie that, is often mistaken for a great movie because it's so well made. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. And, and, you know, and that, in that sense, you know, it's fun to watch an extraordinarily well made movie. Um, and I don't think we have any poorly made Kubrick films coming up. Um, but no. I think uh, this is, you know, it, it's still, uh, it, this, this still is so visually striking. Um, and, and ultimately powerful. I mean, it's hard to deny the fact that you watch this movie and you never look at singing in the rain again the same way. Um, and that's a, a a song that was, you know, 30 or 40 years old at the time this movie was made. So, um, that aspect of it, uh, really kind of puts it above those sort of bottom tier, uh, Kubrick films for me, but it, I would much rather watch The Killing. I think it's a much more successful movie in its modest ambition um, in comparison to this. Um, and I think ultimately, when you're looking at sort of dystopian future films, uh, Clockwork Orange is kind of in the middle of the pack uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in terms of vision and and uh, um, message uh, and and clarity of message in particular. So that's where that's where I'm going here. Um, Ken, nice. thank you so much for for coming on. It was really a pre- pleasure to uh, to hear your thoughts on this film. I'm really glad that we were able to get you on. Oh wow! This this has just been great for me, and I, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. It was it was terrific to hear what what you both had to say about about this movie. Just just fascinating. Thank thanks very much. No problem, Ken. It was fun. Thank you so much for coming and. And for those people who are interested in Samuel Delaney, please check out Ken's books. He will not shamelessly plug himself, so I will shamelessly plug him <laughs> because uh, it is a very, very thorough and interesting insight into uh, a fantastic author. And Ken meticulously uh, paints a very wonderful picture of him. So uh, please, please check out the Samuel Delaney letters that Ken has uh put together and edited it's very very wonderful hey thanks travis (laughs) no problem buddy thank you so next week uh or next time on the show uh we're not exactly going weekly are we travis (laughs) no you know we have life marches on when we have life and we want to be as complete as we can and have these thorough discussions it takes a little time that's true that's true quality Um, not quantity yes (laughs) and there's going to be a lot of quantity in the in the time that it takes to watch our next movie uh, it's quite a yes. it's quite a beast uh it's barry linden um yeah. so are you uh are you looking forward to barry linden i am um this is a uh uh this is one of those films that when i was younger watched once was like nope and put it on the shelf and then watched recently and was like uh-huh 
and now and then I waited because I knew Criterion was doing a fabulous, nice new right. restoration, and so I've been holding off on it, looking forward to uh, viewing it through new eyes once more time. So yes, I'm excited about this one. I have as well. It's been sitting on my shelf since uh, since it was released, um, and uh, I can't wait to pop it in and see what they did for this movie um, because it's uh, it's a pretty stunning film visually. So. I'm looking forward to it uh, really glowing in the uh, in the presentation that they uh, put together. Um, so, uh, well, nice. I guess I'll talk to you uh, next time. Yep, we're complete for another week.